The Start. On Demand. On Demand. Today is June 3rd, which means Concordia Hospital's emergency room is now an urgent care center. Loren McNabb was broadcasting live on location from the hospital. Today, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's and Girls report was released after many years. We'll speak with a woman whose sister went missing in 2008. We'll ask the question, should the city of Winnipeg close major streets for longer periods of time? Close them entirely to allow for speedier construction. And it's Manitoba Pizza Week. Boston Pizza stopped by with some tasty treats that we think you should definitely check out, especially the Mad Mac. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, June 3rd podcast for The Start. Mr. Mackling is in studio, Loren McNabb is on location. Where are you, Loren McNabb? I'm down at Concordia Hospital, which, as we speak, is having its signs changed. Today's the day, June 3rd, that it's going from an ER to an urgent care, and I'm watching right now someone change those signs. I know you drove by here just a few hours ago, Greg, and the emergency signs are still up, but they've been replaced. Big day for people in this neighborhood. I don't necessarily mean a good day depending on how you feel about this change, but but a big day for sure. Yeah, certainly there are people with a little bit of trepidation as this change moves forward. The ER at Seven Oaks remains open, and of course the ER at St. Boniface Hospital is an option. But when you look at the geography involved, the amount of territory that some people have to cover in order to get to an emergency room from the far reaches of East Winnipeg to the far northeast uh, even if you want to include East St. Paul and uh, North Kildonan, and then to the far east of Transcona, Brett, out to Canterbury Park, it's it's a hike to get to an ER from certain parts of the of the city now. Yeah, especially Transcona. If you uh, live in, you mentioned Canterbury Park. That's uh, basically the the northeastern edge, almost of suburban Transcona. And just to get out of that, to say even Plessy, can take like ten to fifteen minutes because. Uh, I always used to lament the number of four-way stops in that neighborhood. Maybe I just noticed it more because that's where I spent most of my life, but it takes a long time just to get out of there. Totally does. Uh, And then you have to worry about getting to, I guess, your closest option really for an emergency would be St. Boniface. So depending on the time of day, it could be a long time to get there. You have to remember, too, that the ER at Seven Oaks is closing in September, or converting, rather, to an urgent care center in September. So if you're in this neck of the woods, I think what people really have to get used to is the idea that this isn't their ER, that Seven Oaks really is no longer an option, and that St. B or HSC is really their destination, which is kind of how the whole city is having to look at things. So we'll talk more about Concordia throughout the morning, but Greg, before I forget, I have to ask you, um, how did you get to work today? Did you drive your uh, your fancy little, uh, is it an M- MG car? Is that what you call it? <laughs> no, I did not drive my MG. You saw it on, on Saturday. That, that vehicle hasn't seen the light of day in some time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, uh, we finally got to, to look <laughs> behind the curtain yeah. into the garage. Oh, yeah. I didn't think we were going to talk about that today. <laughs> well, we're talking about it. We're going to absolutely talk about it. Fantastic. We had the pleasure. It was great to be at your house. You were a great host. Nice to be there on uh, Saturday, Greg. But even better was touring your garage, which I have mocked for 
what, nine months now? Yes. Because it's, it's basically a storage room for you. And then you have that lovely car in there, which in itself is a storage room because the car is also storing things from what we could tell. Oh, toboggans and uh, backpla- <laughs> backpack blowers. You've and, got one of those uh, roof scrapers sort of draped yeah, over the uh, things that you use to pull the snow off. Roof, the roof. rake, yeah, yeah. Snow rake, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, entertain yourself, uh, McNabb. <laughs> fantastic. You have your brother to thank, by the way, for showing oh, us. Exactly. Marvelous. Marvelous. Exactly. <laughs> he, he, was, he has heard me make fun of you over the months about this garage that you can't park cars in. And next thing you know, he's like, do you want to see the garage? And I was like, do I? Yes, I do. you got to be kidding me. That is going to cost him. There's going to be some sanctioning happening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a nice car. Hopefully one day you can restore it be nice. to its glory. Uh, so in our next segment, we're going to talk about tornadoes. My girlfriend actually was in Windsor over the weekend, uh, which is right across the river from Detroit. And even... Uh, she got an emergency alert for the Windsor-Essex region, a tornado warning. Nothing ended up happening. There was just a severe storm. But uh, southeastern Ontario getting pounded by heavy, heavy storm activity over the weekend. Yep, and a tornado touching down in uh, the Ottawa-Gatineau region. And uh, fortunately, no reports of of any deaths or, or serious injuries coming out of that. But, Loren, as we spoke about last week, this has been a bizarre season in the United States. Unprecedented uh, tornadic af- activity, 14 days straight. They had a little bit of a reprieve over the weekend. But our sto- resident storm chaser, Tristan Field-Jones, is back in the building off after a week in southern Ontario. And he's going to come in studio and, and give us uh, words of wisdom on on what he sees is happening and, and some historic references with regards to Manitoba. Well, there's, you know, this is, we always uh, have to remind ourselves that we're kind of in that northern version of Tornado Alley, if you will, the uppermost reach. And it's a big deal for, for people in southern Manitoba to watch for over the summer. And so I'm interested to see what he has to say. I know, of course, we won't see what the states has seen, but, you know, is there a period or a cyclical thing going on or anything that helps us predict these a little bit better in terms of what can we see come tornado season? And I also love Tristan Field-Jones for his uh, enthusiasm on weather. So he's great to chat to at any time when well, it comes to meteorolo- meteorological things. No question about it. His uh, enthusiasm is contagious. He's going to tell us something fascinating about that Alonzo tornado that touched down last summer. Uh, some, th- some information that I didn't realize was the case, and I, I think you might find uh, very interesting yourself. Including McGarry and McNabb, actually, and in terms of the Red River X, we have some passes to give away at 737. We have two gate admissions and a parking pass to the Red River X. We'll do that Monday through Thursday here on the start, and then Friday a little something extra special for the X. So stand by for that. Tristan Field-Jones joins us live in studio. Tristan Field-Jones back from a week off, and you were in southern Ontario this weekend. Yes, we were indeed. just talking about the severe weather. Did you experience... Any of that? You were in where? The Big Smoke? Yeah, I was in Toronto for over a week for some vacation and some uh, business. I was uh, taking part in a, a seminar that was hosted by the Fraser Institute called Economics for Journalists. Very, very informative. 
uh, and uh, yeah, actually, that sounds, uh, sounds real exciting there. Tristan. Well, I, I realized, Brent, that, and, and I had this exact conversation with other friends of mine when I was there. I thought it was very interesting. I realized that not everyone is interested in that, Brett. But that's why I was away there and you weren't. Yeah, it's a vacation. It anyway, like a real vacation. Wake me up before you go, go turns into wake me up when you're over. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, what's interesting for, for some of the severe weather here in Ottawa, I wasn't, I, we didn't really experience much of that in Toronto, but when I, on the first weekend when I was there, we actually did get hit by a pretty nasty storm. And I happened to be in the CN towers sky pod when it hit. Now, is that above the main observation deck? That's, yes, it is. How much higher is that? I was looking at your pictures. That's it's it's 100 meters higher. I believe it's the equivalent to 144 stories, Ooh. roughly. Okay. And it was that was a fascinating experience being hit by a severe storm when you're being pelted by uh, heavy rain and powerful winds. Uh, and what's interesting is that that's actually one of the safest places to be because I didn't know this, but the, the CN Tower is actually rated, can withstand wind gusts of over 300 kilometers an hour. So that that tower is actually wow. incredibly safe to be in during a severe storm. Could you feel it moving at all? Not really, although they did have a little um, pendulum in one of the areas where you could tell. And, and based off the pendulum, I think we were swaying about six inches on either side. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a really cool experience, frankly. So, so you and I were speaking in the newsroom before mm -hmm. we came on the air and talking about tornadoes, th uh, as many as three uh, tornadoes may have touched down in eastern Ontario last night, one for sure in the Ottawa area. And last week we were speaking to NOAA and this bombardment of the Midwest United States mm -hmm, yeah. and, uh, and just a giant swath of, of area and geography in the United States that have been affected by 14 straight, straight days of tornadic activity. They got a little bit of a reprieve this weekend, but you told us something very interesting about last season and also the Alonza tornado that many of our listeners and I certainly didn't know. Yeah, well, and, and what's interesting is that it's, it's worth noting, and I don't know if this is the result of climate change or if, it, if there are other factors, who knows. But what's interesting is that despite these extreme moments of, of tornadic activity in the U.S., it's also interspersed with years with near record lows. And let's use 2018 as an example here. Uh, last year, the most violent twister on Earth, anywhere on Earth, uh, that was recorded was Alonzo, Manitoba. Mm. That was the most violent tornado because the U.S. actually, and I believe this is the first time in its history, did not record a violent tornado. And and that's a very specific specific classification because on, on the way they rank tornadoes, it goes from EF0 to EF5. So you have six categories and violent is the upper two, EF4, EF5. And the U.S. did not record last year that entire area did not record an EF4 or an EF5, and I believe that was the first time in its history that happened. Isn't that interesting? So that dubious distinction went to Manitoba, and again, most powerful tornado recorded on this planet for 2018. And that 10 years after having the most powerful tornado ever in Canada, in Eli. And the furthest north tornado of that classification. What was the, the tornado in Alonzo? Was it EF4? It was EF4, yeah. Okay. And, and I think the wind speeds were estimated... Close to 300 kilometers an hour. Wow. There, yeah. Um, and what's interesting about these trends is that, so we look at, and 2011 is, is a, was, a, was a crazy year for tornadoes in the U.S. I believe the, when you tally up all the damage, it was $11 billion caused by tornadic damage. And then you go to 2013, I think they had 900 tornadoes touch down in the U.S., which sounds like a lot, but was actually a record low. 
And then the year afterwards in 2014, it was the latest formation ever of a significant tornado, like an EF3 or above that. And then, so you have these years of craziness, like what we're seeing now, interspersed with a few years of near record low activity. It's all over the place when it comes to that. So it, it, it tends to, it, it really is strange what is going on. Tristan Field-Jones joining us live on 680 CJOB. Tristan, thank you very much. And uh, should I just uh, quickly looked it up here. And the, we, the wind speed in the Alonzo tornado between 270 and 280 kilometers an hour. Yeah, the changeover of Concordia's emergency room to urgent care is in full effect. And uh, here's the text that says, I wonder if the whole point of this changeover is to have a further drive to an ER so that more people will go to urgent care. Uh, and this person says, I believe the city wants, and of course, this is a provincial uh, initiative and the WRHA uh, in conjunction with the province making these changes. This is a plan to ensure that people going to an ER are taken by ambulance. And I went back and forth with this person a little bit. And if you look at any of the messaging from the province about this right now, and they've got their DUE do. Urgent care is for stitches, sprained ankles, that sort of thing. And if you look and you heed that message directly, you get the impression that emergency, if you're having an emergency, you should call an ambulance. Yeah. So there is an element that to that for sure. So Concordia's emergency room closing at some point today and being converted to an urgent care center. On Wednesday, the WRHA announced it was accelerating the transition. The switchover was supposed to take place June 25th. Global's Merrick Takash sets up today's change. This will just stay home and die. Kathy Nelson believes an emergency department at Concordia is essential. I can't believe that in this day and age this kind of thing is going on. Um, in a city this size, you know, we need this. We're spread out so far. But Concordia's ER will be downgraded to an urgent care centre on Monday. No one called me about uh, anything. I just found out yesterday that they're closing on Monday. Nothing. I didn't see any noise. I just heard about it. Despite the transformation that will take place next week, the people I've spoken with say they'll be coming here anyway. Absolutely, I'll take that upon myself to demand some kind of health care. Whatever the emergency is, they are still going to keep coming as far as I'm concerned. The nurses' union says moving up the date created more confusion. At least if we'd have waited till, you know, Jan uh, June 25th, we would have had some time to ensure that the public is aware that that is no longer a functioning emergency department. It's now an urgent care center. After Monday, anyone suffering a life-threatening medical emergency should go to Seven Oaks, HSC, St. Boniface, or Grace Hospital. By the time they get to the St. Boniface or to the Health Science Center, it could be too late. Merrick DeCash, Global News. Our own Loren McNabb is at Concordia Hospital. Loren, the sign has been changed. Yeah, the signs are all changed. There's a small one in the back that still says emergencies with an arrow pointing uh, in the south direction, but it's just a really minor sign. So all those big ones that light up at night that used to say emergency room and in fact said ER or emergency room just a few hours ago are now gone. They say urgent care. And that even brought some staff members outside to take some photos of this because it's a pretty monumental change for staff members here as well as the community. I, I stepped inside what used to be the ER. It still has its ambulance bay. You were just talking about whether or not ambulances would come here. Well, it still has its ambulance bay. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of urgent care 
would be brought here via ambulance, but that's still available. And it's on the inside. It looks pretty much the same. It's just the sign changes on the outside. And I guess what you choose to do if you're in a situation, if you need stitches or you have a broken leg, the messaging is this is the place for you if you live in this part of Winnipeg. But if you're having a heart condition uh, or a heart failure, a heart attack, I mean, you might have cut yourself really deeply. You're going to have to decide if uh, if you call the ambulance, call 911, or if you try to bring yourself to an ER, Greg. Well, and I remember taking Jackie to the urgent care, oh gosh, almost 15 years ago now, and uh, took her to Misericordia because we weren't sure what was going on. And in fact, they transferred her to Concordia via ambulance from Misericordia. So I suspect that there might be some of that activity going on from Concordia to other hospitals moving people via ambulance. So I don't think that that ambulance bay will go uh, unused, shall we say. Lots of commentary about this change and what it means for this part of the city. And, and Brett and I were doing some calculating on Google Maps here, and we were talking about Canterbury Park and the far eastern part of Transcona, almost at the perimeter And according to Google Maps, now this was in a perfect world, 15 minutes to get to Concordia Hospital, 20 to get to St. Boniface Hospital. But we know, Brett, at at a regular or normal time of the day in normal traffic, those two numbers are are likely to be much different than that. Yeah, it would be, uh, it would be, unless it's when we get up to go to work at four in the morning, like when, cause Google maps, when, isn't one of the things they do, doesn't, don't they take into consideration what the traffic is at the moment? They may. Yes. For certain routes. I think so. Yeah. So if you were to check that at uh, 4 PM, it might actually, I think it suggests based on what the, what the traffic situation is, what the fastest route might be. Cause I remember, yeah, I think actually over the weekend I was looking at Google maps. I had mapped out one route and then I checked it a couple hours later and it had changed. It, it changed its recommended route based on the traffic. Uh, so that could increase to, God, half hour. If you're coming from, as you mentioned earlier, Canterbury Park to get to St. Boniface, that would be a long way. Somebody texting us saying, might be quicker to drive to Selkirk for EMS service from northeast Winnipeg. Not sure about that. Well, How long of a drive I is it to Selkirk? I know lots of people who are already doing that That's and have right. been doing it for a long time. Loren? Yeah, you make an interesting point there. The texter does for sure. Like Selkirk uh, had a completely um, revamped facility out there. It's brand new, state of the art. And there was some talk even at that time when Selkirk, you know, had its grand opening that would this become a destination for some people who live in the northern part of the city? And, and what you forget until you do the Google map uh, search that you just did, uh, Brett and Greg, is the distance really for some of these folks living in this neighborhood to the closest emergency room or hospital. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't doubt that there are already people who've decided, you know what, I'm just going to drive to Selkirk for, for maybe a couple of reasons. Maybe it's closer or maybe it just they think it might have some better options in terms of better machines or, or care or facility because it is new. Oh, well, then what, what is it about those who live in South Winnipeg? Well, how long of a drive is it now cause since Victoria switched if they need exactly. to get to an so- ER? We we had done that uh, math a couple of years ago when they announced that Victoria was losing its ER and converting to an urgent care. And so in some cases, that doubled for sure, because if you were living right on the south perimeter, your closest was Victoria. Now you're coming all the way downtown to either St. B or HSC. So there's all sorts of Winnipeggers who've already had to you know accommodate and make that decision and make those different choices. And I think the thing that 
is out here in this neighborhood. And from what I'm hearing to people that we've spoken to is just more, not just, not just the distance that they might have to go, but the confusion that still exists because it was just five days ago that they didn't know when this conversion was happening. And then on Wednesday, the province announced, yep, June 3rd is the date. The ER will no longer exist. Today's the day it converts to an urgent care. Seven Oaks is supposed to see some transformations in September, but because of all these kind of fluctuating timelines, I think people are in this part of Winnipeg are really thinking about, okay, well, is that going to happen? And when will that happen? And what does that mean for me? And so the confusion, no doubt, is really strong for both residents and staff members. Well, here's a text message at 204-780-6868. If most people would take some time and actually sit in an emergency room and see what people are really there for, they will see that this is not as bad as it seems. We need to be a city that moves forward, not stays in the past. Having emergency services put into central locations like brain surgeries, heart surgeries, more centralized is better. You have a broken leg, you go to urgent care. You have a cold, go to urgent care. 90% of those items are urgent care, and that is what is clogging up the emergency rooms. Tristan Field-Jones is here, Jeff Forte is here, Mackling and McGarry in studio, Loren McNabb on location at Concordia Hospital. Five, I guess a week ago, it was 4 a.m. last Monday, when or just after 4 a.m., I got to where you two, you were here already, Greg, Loren was here already, and we usually park sort of under the deck by Hudson's Bay, and I couldn't get into it because they had set up barricades around every access point into that parking lot, and I ended up having to park sort of on the northeast side by Cora's, the breakfast place downstairs. And you went out and moved your car, and uh, we were wondering, what are they doing? Well, it turns out they tore up the whole sidewalk by Hudson's Bay, sort of around both sides, and uh, they ended up putting fresh blacktop on the parking lot, and we were wondering, how long is this going to take them to do? (laughs) Uh, And we heard that it was finished on Friday, Essentially, they still have some some finishing touches to put on. They've still got some barricades up, but traffic is moving. They've paid, they've freshened up the parking lot, repainted the lines. Five days, and we thought five days. That was even faster than I thought it would be. I thought a couple of weeks. So, what did you think when they it took them no time at all? Well, it got me wondering. Uh, a uh, was this just uh, a band aid solution to their problem in the parking lot? But they had the chewing the big uh, machine that chews up the old blacktop before, and they did that before they laid down the new blacktop. And so, of course, it got me wondering, what are they doing differently versus what they're doing on the streets of Winnipeg when they're repairing things? Now, I'm not naive enough to think that a parking lot receives the same abuse as one of our roadways, but it did open up a whole can of worms for us in terms of discussion of how long should this really take when they're fixing our roadways? And I thought Brett came up with a stellar suggestion, and that was maybe part of the problem, and I think you're right, Brett, a big part of the challenge of fixing a roadway, TFJ, mm-hmm. is the fact that you have to deal with traffic passing by you. Maybe it might make sense just to shut all the lanes of traffic down for a week or so and long short-term pain, long-term gain. Well, and I, I, I think you can't have this discussion without even briefly mentioning overnight construction, which I know is an issue that the mayor has been 
Uh, I think he's mentioned that he's in favor of it beforehand, oh, or yes. at least they're looking into it. They are looking into it, and apparently they have been using it at different times. But Well, major major cities do that sort of stuff where, let's say, be it overnight or maybe for entire days, whatever it may be, they close off these roads, they get it done, and I'm 100% in favor of that. Do whatever it takes to get these roads done quicker. Yeah. Portier, what do you think? I'm down for that. I just... Uh as long as it's not going to be like, you know, Portage Avenue, you have to be able to get around, you know, if you close down a street, as long as there's a detour that you can get around, I'd be I'd be down for that. Well, and I think that's where the discussion happens, because, uh, Greg, you and I both sort of thought of the same spot, and that's Jubilee, what they're doing at, at uh, Pemina and Jubilee, because they do, they have closed it on more than one occasion for a weekend where they had to go in and do something serious. But, uh, I mean, that that whole thing where they're doing so much work there, and I just wonder, like, how much would they benefit if they had a full week of just nonstop, around-the-clock construction on where that? Where they didn't have to deal with traffic and worry about people passing within inches of the construction workers. I don't care if it's 30 kilometers an hour or 40 that people are traveling through there. That's got to slow things down. What do you think, McNabb? I like it. My only thing is, you know how they put those signs up? Because they do do closures sometimes, right, that say, like, you know, they're shutting this section, uh, I think, eastbound uh, at Portage Avenue in Maine, the eastbound crossing in front of Fairmont now. You can't do that for the next uh, few months. And so it's just about the timeline, like, how long is it going to be for? And then are they going to stick to it? Like, if they do short-term closures, say, for five days, we're going to go really hard for five days, and like they have with the Jubilee underpass and the BRT, are they going to be able to come that Monday morning, A, have all that work actually done, and then also be able to stick to the time that they told Winnipeggers they're going to do it under? And so I just wonder how they'd be able to be so sure, right? They'd have to give themselves some pad time maybe. Like this project should take three days, but we'll be done it. We'll give ourselves six or seven. And then, then I think I'd be cool with it. Yeah, and a project like Jubilee, and we realize comparing repairing a sidewalk and then yeah. paving a parking lot is not – Building a fresh underpass, or of whatever. course not. But still, no. I it, when they shut down a, a one lane of traffic, and then it ends up being this kind of exhaustive, long, tedious process for something. I, I just I've always wondered, would it be better to just shut it all down? And we had this conversation in the winter too. Like, would the would it be easier for the plows if they just blocked off? huge chunks of a street for a couple hours, let them clear it out, and then we move on. Like that that you mentioned, Loren, East uh, Portage, for, or Portage East to from Main Street to, to Westbrook, that directly impacts my route home, and it's a huge pain now because I either have to turn right to go up to uh, uh, William Stevenson Way uh, or turn left and then sort of bail onto Lombard, and it, it's created a backlog. I've, I've taken to just trying to find an entirely new route home because mm-hmm. it does but create a pain. How annoying How annoying would it be, though, Brett, if, say, they tried to accommodate everybody and say, okay, we'll turn, we'll turn that road into two single lanes going both directions, right, just to keep the traffic moving? Like, say they could actually do that. It would just be equally as painful, I think, for traffic flow. So sh- just shutting it down seems to make more sense in some ways you're still going to have a backlog and you're still going to be frustrated if they found were able to find a way to keep traffic moving i think yeah and i I, it's not a complaint by the way i'm happy they're doing it it's just uh there there is a give and take i wonder on one hand i'm supportive and on another hand i'm kind of i don't know so that's why we ask you at 204-780-6868 
We have a great text message real quick. I unload oversized equipment on construction sites. I would love short-term closure, no road flares. Pull it off uh, real quick, get out of there. I spend a lot of time making, quote, a safe workplace. Mackling McGarry McNabb is on location. When the federal government launched its inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in 2015, our next guest made sure she was in Ottawa to hear the news firsthand. Bernadette Smith's sister, Claudette Osborne, went missing in 2008. And for Smith, the inquiry represented hope, a possibility that families would finally be heard. Today, some three and a half years after that inquiry launched, the final report has been released publicly with more than 200 recommendations to the federal government. Calls, violence against First Nations, Métis and Inuit women and girls, a form of genocide and a crisis that has been centuries in the making. Bernadette Smith joins us now live on 680 CJOB on the phone. Bernadette, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us today. Have your feelings on the inquiry from 2015 to now changed? Yeah, they have changed. You know, we, our family didn't participate. You know, we had always been calling for a national action plan. In fact, here in Manitoba in 2010, we had uh, asked the government through petition writing to create a national action plan that would address the high numbers of violence against Indigenous women. We collected 50,000 signatures. We sent that in. And of course, at the time, there was a Harper government who we heard from wasn't high on his uh, radar. So, and the reason they say we, we held hope that, you know, this would um, help and support families, but we quickly saw that families were left with almost no aftercare um, the inquiry came in and, um, you know, families shared their, their stories, but they weren't given enough time. And when I went to go, our family went actually to the hearing here that was in Manitoba. And we decided not to participate because of what we saw. We saw families weren't given enough time. There wasn't enough support. And we didn't feel that it was culturally relevant and that there were enough supports for families to, uh, you know, really start to unpack what had happened to them and some of the actions that needed to happen to to continue to address. Well, the inquiry was certainly mired in controversy, potentially from the beginning, Bernadette. Now that we're hearing some of the recommendations from it and the use of the term genocide and a crisis that has been centuries in the making, what do you make of them finally using that term genocide when it comes to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? Well, it's certainly a term that we've used in the Indigenous community for for years upon years. We knew that this was happening, and yes, it's nice for, you know, the Canadian government to acknowledge it, but we also need Canadians to acknowledge it. This isn't an Indigenous issue. This isn't just a woman's issue. This is a human issue, and these are people that live in Canada, that live in the province of Manitoba, that live in the city of Winnipeg, and for some reason... You know, we've been treated less than, and that needs to shift. We need society to shift that the shift the way that they treat one another. We need our three levels of government to come up with action plans in the city and the province and all of Canada to address these high numbers and to really look at how are we going to 
undo some of the colonial uh, things that we've done throughout history, and language was one of them. We know that even from being an educator, that I watched, you know, students not know who they were. That was because of of the uh, residential school. It was a result of colonial practices that are still happening here in Canada. We look at uh, the high numbers of children in care, over 11,000. We look at the incarceration rates. That's over 80% are Indigenous people. How do we undo those systems that create that? Bernadette Smith joining us live on 680 CJOB. Her sister Claudette Osborne went missing in 2008. And today the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women has been released publicly. Bernadette, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's find out the latest from Loren McNabb, who is live on location at Concordia Hospital, which is becoming an urgent care instead of emergency today. Loren, have you been talking to people on the street? Yeah, I've been talking to both staff members and people who are just coming here for various reasons. One of the staff members we talked to uh, actually said to us that he's moving from this facility in three weeks to a different one. But had he had known it was going to convert from an ER to an urgent care rather than just go closing that ER completely. He says he would have made the choice to stay. He didn't get that choice. And so he said that's add to some confusion and concern. And then we just spoke to another couple that's here for, uh, her knee replacement and this hospital is of course really big for knee and hip surgeries there's another attached facility and they have an interesting story because they don't live in this neighborhood they live in Gimli but they've come here for this surgery today and they're carefully watching and in some cases worrying about what's happening because they're in that next group that's trying to figure out okay well what's going to happen to rural Manitoba ERs take a listen so have you used this hospital in the past for its ER or anything else no no. When you hear about the changes that are happening throughout the system, what are your thoughts when you hear about ERs closing or converting or all the rest? I think it's terrible. The, the, the way the healthcare system is being treated right now is just a disgrace. What's your primary concern? Well, the, the concerns, the cutbacks. Our son is a nurse and he's working so many hours that uh, he can't even keep up with his workload. He's an administrator in Gimli. Now you're coming to the hospital today, Diane, for a knee replacement yes. but you uh, live in an area that may see its own changes coming soon we don't know what's happening in rural Manitoba yet for uh, emergency rooms or others what's your primary thing that you'd like to see stick around in your area or maybe your primary concern well people just don't know where to go really if something happens and where do you go you're out in Gimli so where's the next hospital you go to and where do you go and where is your next hospital Selfridge. If you were in Gimli and you had an emergency, you would go to Selkirk? No, we'd go to Gimli, but there's very limited staff in Gimli. So we'd probably end up going from Gimli to Selkirk by ambulance, I guess. So, Loren, we had a text message from a listener at 780-6868 who said that uh, their hospital closest to them is Pinawa. You've been told, or people in that part of the province have been told to call ahead because there isn't always a doctor on duty in Penawa. That's absolutely the case in many 
uh, small towns or communities in this province. And, and you know, I know in my own neck of the woods, sometimes we'll, we'll go to St. Pierre's Relief Hospital. And sometimes there's a doctor on the weekends and sometimes there isn't. There isn't one after 8 p.m. So you either have to know the hours or hedge your bets and call and just go or call ahead and say, like, if I come right now, you know, I, for example, I needed stitches last fall. Um, are you, is someone going to be able to do that for me? Now that is an urgent care procedure that, that, that would fall under that realm. But I think that that's the next question as we move forward. So now we know the future of Concordia. It's an urgent care facility as of today. We know Seven Oaks is coming in September, but then there's the whole question, the rural emergency room question, which is what those folks you just heard express their concerns about. What, what happens to their ER and then where will they all be left in the interlake? So there's lots of lingering questions out there and of course lots of decisions to be made yet. Fire evacuees from a northern Ontario First Nation have made their way to Winnipeg. A fire burning near Pekanjikum First Nation, about 500 kilometers northwest of Thunder Bay, has forced residents to flee, with some evacuees making their way to Winnipeg. Now, the blaze has forced about 1,700 residents from the fly-in community out, and yesterday the Ontario government asked Manitoba to help. Jason Small is with the Canadian Red Cross in Winnipeg and joins us now live on CJOB to explain what is being done. Jason, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So, Jason, exactly how many folks are here in the city of Winnipeg? So, after yesterday, we were able to get about 330 people uh, here on five flights. Um, they, Yeah, they arrived yesterday at the airport, and so we have uh, them staying now at hotels uh, throughout the city. Last year, we had thousands of evacuees. It's extremely dry out there, uh, northern Manitoba, northwestern Ontario, right across the prairies and into BC, really. Is there worry, and are we prepared for another bad wildfire season? Um, you know, we're always prepared for a bad wildfire season, to be honest. We, we uh, have been supporting evacuees every year for the past couple of years. So uh, we're ready for these things. We know that it's dry and our team is ready in case uh, things do uh, require us to help more people uh, come out of communities due to wildfires. Well, how can the average Manitoban help if they wanted to lend a hand? Uh, the biggest thing for us, because this is, this is actually supported by the Ontario government. So the biggest thing uh, we can use as, a, as an organization is more hands. Um, the Red Cross is a volunteer-driven organization, and we have an incredible team of volunteers who have already been out there yesterday uh, greeting people at the airport, greeting people at the reception center, and getting them to their hotels. But we can always use more. Um, so if people are interested in volunteering with us, and uh, you know, it may may not be able to get trained in time to help with this response, but certainly there there may be more responses this year. So we can always use more people to help. Jason, help us understand what that looks like for a family or uh, individuals who come to Winnipeg from a, from a first nation, in Northwest Ontario. What, what do the first few hours look like in terms of that transition from first of all, escaping uh, an emergency situation, then, then coming to a place maybe they've never been before. Right. So when they, they arrived at, at the airport, um, they get brought into Terminal. We had a, a team yesterday uh, uh, from uh, EMS paramedics joining us who checked with everybody to make sure if there was any health issues that needed help with. And then uh, we've, everybody got on, on buses at the airport and were taken to 
um, our reception center at a hotel. From there, our team um, registered everybody while everybody waited for registration. We have food available, so people made sure that, you know, at least they, they could take care of that while they waited, made sure we got everybody registered. And as we're registering people, uh, again, either if they had a room at that hotel, then they went off to the room there or put them on a bus and took them to their hotel, wherever, uh, wherever that would be. And so now, you know, they get a chance to relax and, and now we, you know, as we're setting into this, if they need any other resources, they can take a bus that will be looping between hotels and the reception center. So they can go back to the reception center if they need certain supplies, possibly like baby formula um, or diapers. And if they need any other help, they can go back to the reception center to, to, to get that help. And today we're, we're doing the same thing. We've got more people coming in, go to the airport from the airport to the reception center and into a hotel. I know you're in Winnipeg. One of our listeners is curious. Do you know how the fire or fires in that region are getting, are starting? Uh, no, I've, um, I'm not aware that the fires are not our area of expertise. We, we look after taking care of the, of the people and we leave that to the, the governments. Okay. We were just, yeah, we were wondering if you happen to hear from uh, some of the people who are making their way over, if they knew. Uh, so if somebody listening right now wants to help out, uh, is there somewhere they, somebody they should call or somewhere they can go online to yeah, get started? The best, yeah, the best place to go is redcross.ca and uh, click on volunteer, and that's the best place to, to help uh, if you're looking to lend a hand, whether it's here in Winnipeg or if you're, uh, you know, if you're listening somewhere else, uh, your Red Cross team can certainly use a, a helping hand where they are as well, but uh, definitely here in Manitoba, um, that would be a great way to help us out. All right, Jason Small with the Canadian Red Cross joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Loren McNabb is at Concordia Hospital, and uh, Loren, as you drove in this morning, you do you did, I guess your drive probably doesn't take you past Portage in Maine, but you were downtown this weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Did you see yeah, the barriers painted? Beautiful. You were talking about it earlier. Did you see the barriers yeah, I did, and I I was down there with my fan. No, we're going to lose Loren. Here. Oh, did we just lose Loren? Not only does the northeast uh, corner of the city <laughs> not have an ER any longer, apparently the cell coverage isn't tremendous either. Yeah, that's right. So we'll, we'll work on getting Loren back online here. But uh, she spent some time downtown. I didn't get through downtown at all this weekend, so I didn't notice that the barriers at Portage and Maine had been painted with the rainbow colors of Pride Winnipeg until this morning. Well, Uliani, one of our regular listeners and contributors, uh, on text at seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight said that uh, they painted that on Saturday. Yeah, and they did a tremendous job. Looks super professional, clean lines, uh, great distinctions between the colors of the rainbow, uh, which are represented in the pride flag. So uh, good on uh, the organizers for making that happen. Like I said uh, very early this morning. Anything that makes those barricades look a little more palatable and a little more beautiful, I am uh, all for that. And up to 50,000 people estimated to take part in events. Uh, yesterday, the parade, uh, Pride Week culminating in the parade yesterday. Yeah. And uh, boy, I, I, when I was on my Facebook yesterday, it seemed as though every other person I know was down there. So that, that number sort of adds up. 
in terms of the number of people that I know that were down there. People said that they were there for the very first time. Yeah, my social media was overrun with uh, posts from Pride Winnipeg. Loren McNabb, I understand you're back. And was it the same for you as you went on various social media? Well, actually, I was downtown Sunday morning because we had gone down to the convention center for the Jurassic Park walk with the dinosaurs type thing with the kids. And then I was like, oh, right, the Pride Parade. And so it was cool because we sort of got to take it in. And you mentioned all the people that were down there. And it made me wonder if if it was just kind of becoming a really awesome mainstream thing in the sense where... Like, for me, it was a great conversation starter with my children, right? To be like, oh, what's the parade about and why? And you had a really good talk that way. And there just seemed to be families and uh, friends of ours just taking in the festivities and just, you know, it was a party for everyone. And it was awesome. And and you mentioned the colored barricades. I hope they keep those. Like, I wonder how long they'll keep that up because it's so much better than the gray. Just let that ride for as long as the color holds. Well, I hope they will keep those up as long as those barricades up how's that <laughs> yeah that sounds good leave the rainbow yes. covers until the barricade comes down <laughs> altogether yeah because they're going to have to redo them anyway mm-hmm. right so yeah almost fifty thousand people lining the streets of downtown winnipeg by by comparison just off the top of your head do you know what the attendance is for santa claus parade? i think sixty thousand is a, a pretty common number that gets bandied about by the, uh, it's not the Rotary Club, it is the Winnipeg JCs that do the Santa Claus Parade. And I, I've seen that number used uh, several times, so very comparable for sure. I just want to quickly mention something that's happening tonight. I know, Greg, you're watching it. I, it's an HBO miniseries, five episodes. It started a month ago. I wasn't going to watch it. But I keep bumping into people who are watching it, and then they tell me that I should watch it. So I started watching it, and the finale is tonight. It's called Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. So I have to admit, I, I aside from the fact that I knew there was an explosion and that the area is now uninhabitable, that's all I really knew about Chernobyl. So this has been a very, it's a difficult series to watch. It is painful. And uh, from the sense that it re- it's a good reminder, I think, of, of humanity's capacity for absolute failure. The way that the Soviet Union failed those people by not evacuating them sooner, by just failing to recognize what was happening, by refusing to accept what was happening. It, 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 like it's shout at your television anger, but it's so powerful. This might be one of the most, you no, know, I won't say it might be, it is one of the most powerful things I've ever watched on television and I highly recommend you check it out it's on demand like I said only five episodes and if you uh, if you have a, either you'll just like good television or you like you like true stories that are told in a not sensational way it just tells you what happened they took a couple of liberties but it's uh, it's extraordinary it's all it's a story about self-preservation and how that system really generated and created a system where you feared for your life if you made a mistake. And so there was a reluctance 
according to the way it's being documented in this series to uh, for folks at the lower levels to report to folks that were in levels above them, to the Kremlin, to other agencies that would say, hey, we've got this going on because people were were fear, fearing for their own lives that should it be discovered that they were responsible for any part of this. And then, of course, uh, I'm just uh, was trying to get caught up on, I think it's the second one, mm-hmm. where people are lining up at the hospitals. They have military personnel in front of the hospital. No spoilers really here, but to to prevent people from getting into the hospital because the hospital is overrun with people looking for iodine tablets, which they had were in very short supply. It really shows down how quickly society can break down under an emergency situation. That's the other scary part of this. And my dad actually on April 25th posted a picture. My dad was in Moscow. For the World Hockey Championships in April 1986. Oh, wow. And they did not, him and my grandfather, did not learn of Chernobyl until they were in Finland on April 27th when they had a copy of the New York Post given to them on their Finland air flight from from Finland to Montreal. And they had been inside the country when this happened, well, the Soviet uh, new j- agencies did, TASS, etc., did, and Pravda did a really good job of not telling uh, Soviet citizens what was going on in their own country as well. Well, well one of my, my friends, uh, his wife, and I won't, uh, won't identify her, but she says she was born in Kiev on April 26, 1986. Oh, my goodness. And her family didn't find out about this for like two weeks because communism. So, yeah. Watch it. It's excellent. HBO finale is tonight for Chernobyl. Here's the headline. Show Lake First Nations Freedom Road officially opens. A First Nation left isolated more than a century ago so that water could be diverted to Winnipeg has officially opened its all-season road to the mainland. Show Lake Chief Irwin Redsky says the community on the Manitoba-Ontario border was an example of broken relationships with Canada, but now it can demonstrate a path forward to reconciliation. This is just the first step to reconciliation. We call it the road to reconciliation, and I think there's just opened so many opportunities for our First Nation. Show Lake was cut off from the mainland more than a century ago uh, during the construction of an aqueduct that supplies Winnipeg with drinking water. And ironically, Brett, that First Nation has been under a boil water advisory for two decades. Wow, well, the person responsible for connecting us with this story is Kelly Geraldine Malone from Canadian Press. She was in Shoal Lake and joins us now. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. This is really one of those good news stories, I think, Kelly. Uh, the backstory isn't a terrific one, but this is a, a project whose completion is long overdue. Oh, absolutely. And it was uh, the strangest sensation, I guess, in that community. Everyone was smiling. It was like if you took weight off of hundreds of people who were out walking around and just lifted it off, what that would look like. It was an absolutely amazing day to be there on Friday as they prepared for this week's celebration. Well, and uh, celebrate is uh, really something that uh, that you could really only do <laughs> to, uh, on in a situation like this in Winnipeg or other places. You know, you, you open up a an interchange, you might cut a ribbon, and that's exciting stuff. But th- th- this is this is a gravel road in terms of its construction, etc. Fairly nondescript, correct? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you drive on it. Like I turned and I was like, am I on it? Like, I, where am I? Is this Freedom Road? Because it still has a pipeline road sign. So I like pulled over and asked someone. I was like, am I on Freedom Road? Uh, I'm sure the locals know exactly where it is. But for me, I was just like, it looks like any other road. But the the power behind it. And when you drive, I drove the road with Chief Red Sky. And he explained to me how his entire life, he had been fighting every year to try and get that road. His father was chief and was fighting for it in the 1950s to try and get this road. And there was actually a red sky who was chief in 1920 that they have paperwork that shows that he was fighting for this road. And so for him to get in a vehicle now and just be able to drive it and get his groceries is generations in the making. Are you there, Loren? We want to bring you in on this. Well, up till now, Kelly, when when people... Yeah, I was just going to mention that having been there before to that community, it's a key time for it to get its road because summertime, they rely for years now, they've been relying on a kind of a makeshift ferry to move their boats back and forth. So they really were stuck there without that ferry and that ferry would often break down and it wasn't much of a boat, right? I mean, it was quite a process just to get on and off that community. Absolutely. And uh, the no one, I think, was upset when I went over and saw that the ferry is just pulled up on the shore right now and people are just like not addressing it. It's, they don't have to worry about it this year, but, but it truly was. It was dangerous. Coming and going, depending on the season, was life-threatening. Um, in the winter, there was winter roads, but uh, they were dangerous. They weren't lit. Um, they didn't give you access to everywhere. In the summer, it was the ferry that if if it ran, you still had to get there during certain times. You had a curfew just by living in the community because the ferry didn't run 24-7. And also, if you missed your curfew, you had to pay a toll in other communities just to get home. Um, and then in the seasons in between when the ferry couldn't run and there weren't these winter roads, people walked the ice. Uh, I, I spoke with a, a high school student named Ainsley, and she was telling me about trying to get to a hockey game in Kenora and her and her grandmother carrying all of her hockey gear, walking across the ice and hearing it crack as she was walking. And I just can't imagine being a, a teenager and having to experience that. Kelly, Geraldine Malone from the Canadian Press joining us live on 680 CJOB talking Freedom Road in Shoal Lake. Kelly, thank you for this. Thank you so much. I've been visiting with her for almost 10 years now. It's hard to believe. And on this program and on 680 CJOB, we like to highlight the exploits of Winnipeggers who put our city on the map. One of the top female boxers in the world calls our city home. She is the title of WMC Super Featherweight World Champion, representing Winnipeg, Canada, and Team Predator, ladies and gentlemen, Olivia the Predator. I mean, if that, if that nickname doesn't intimidate you enough, her mere presence should. Olivia's heading to Rangar, Denmark, for a match June 15 versus Sarah Mafood, and she's taking some time with us before she leaves early next week. Good morning, Olivia. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's always great to see you, and you were telling me off-air that you have 
already lost 28 pounds <laughs> off your already slender frame in preparation for this match. How many more, how much more weight do you have to lose? Um, I still have to cut a solid 13 before I weigh in. I got to be at 127. and My body does not like being lower than 130. I have bones to worry about, so... <laughs> Wow, cut! Eh? You see, I just have to cut thirteen more pounds. <laughs> when do you have? To, what is it? Like when is the fight? Is uh, the fight's June, the fifteenth. Fifteenth. The weigh-ins on the fourteenth. So, wow. um, part of the work. I mean, the hardest challenge is cutting, leaning out for the fight. But it lets you get into the mindset you need to be in. So, for every meal I've missed, every dessert I've skipped, I want to punch her in the face. So it'll work out really well. Well, it's interesting too the terminology cutting. Like everyone else says, we got I, I got to lose ten pounds. I got to drop yeah. ten. But you've gone with a specific terminology cutting. I need to cut thirteen pounds. So, is there something different in the way that you do that versus a normal weight loss? Effort? A hundred percent. I'm a, I'm a certified personal trainer as well. So diet is not what I'm doing. Diet is something that's supposed to be attainable and for a long term and lifestyle. Cutting is not something anyone wants to go through. People watch me melt weight off and I'm, I'm losing about a pound a day, 0.8 somewhere in there. And so one week to the next, I'm smaller, smaller, smaller. People are like, how do you do that? I'm like, you don't want to know. You don't want to do this. So it's just, it's just to get me in prime condition to do what I'm doing. I would never, I'm, I'm around, I'm under 800 calories and I'm training three, four hours a day. So it's grueling and it's tough, but it makes me into a beast, which is what I need to be when I walk in that ring. So it affects your mindset, not only just in terms of the focus and getting ready, but it literally makes you angry. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually doing it pretty well. I mean, I've been doing this for 22 years professionally, right? Sure. So I do understand this. And everyone in my circles, all my friends, my family, my clients, everyone knows like when I'm going through a cut, they need to be a little bit more uh, patient with me because if they start, if I start getting stressed with them, I'm going to lose it. But um, I've learned to adjust to emotional stuff pretty good, I think. Is so it- I better be careful how I ask this next, <laughs> okay. next question. Sorry, Brett. How determined are you to, to make a statement in this next match. Uh, I probably don't need to remind you that you, you've lost your last two matches, one in Estonia and, and one in Texas. Thanks for that reminder, by the way. Greg <laughs> as, rolls away yeah, from the microphone. As he moves, I got a long reach. No, I don't. Um, you know what? Honestly, this is a different fight for me. I usually go into uh, most of my bouts uh, very diplomatic, very professional, and I sit on that panel and I do the interviews and I say, thank you for bringing me here. I, I'm so proud to represent my country. I'm, you know, welcoming me here. Da, 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 da. This one I'm I'm literally walking into Denmark and I'm like, I don't care if you're like, you know, thanks for inviting me, but I don't care if your mother and father are in this fight. I'm winning this fight and I'm going home. Like I'm out. Um, I'm I've kind of worked off of a year of aggression off of my Estonia fight. And I'm done being a journeyman fighter who loses on the road. Like I know it's difficult to win. I get that. But when you've done everything you can and you've done everything you should have done and still you get the loss, it's killing me. So I'm done with people building off their careers off of what I've accomplished. And uh, I'm either getting disqualified or I'm winning. Those are my two options. That's it. So how do you keep the intensity up then? You know, you mentioned 22 years you've been doing this. That's a long time to be that focused so how do you keep that focus up um you know it's a hard thing to explain but i feel like boxing is what i'm supposed to be doing and it doesn't make me make much sense but when i don't have a fight lined up i feel like i'm kind of in limbo like i'm just 
walking around without a purpose. And then when I got that fight lined up, like that's where I go. Um, so I was looking at retiring uh, two years ago, so my 20 years, and um, I'm still tuning up 20 year olds. And unfortunately, my plan was to retire in the city here. I'm still the UBF champion, and I want to defend it here in front of my fans and friends and family. And um, there hasn't been a card here. This is not boxing in our city. So unfortunately, I've had to travel out of the of the country to be able to fight and do what I love. That being said, it's a huge benefit because if I can go get a fight in Belize, I'm I'm there. So <laughs> I may not want want to retire at all, but who knows? <laughs> so do you understand a little bit more than maybe Brett or I would? Uh, boxers in particular are famous for hanging up the gloves and then coming out of retirement for <laughs> one last fight. But we see that with a lot of athletes where they just cannot give up the ghost, so to speak. We hear hockey players talking all the time about how they miss the uh, the, the, the dressing room, the camaraderie of such. And, and you hear the commentary uh, from a lot of different athletes. I, I guess you can relate to that quite significantly. Yeah. I mean, boxing has been the one true constant in my life through every change and every growth. I have children who've grown up, marriages, divorce. I've got like everything has stayed the same with boxing and that's been my one true love kind of thing. So it will be hard to let it go and I'll have to decide what defines me after that. Um, it's not, I'm in a different country. Like I said, any other place I'm at, you know, being a three-time world champion boxing, a boxer is just a huge thing and you know, there's there's all this hoopla over it in Winnipeg. They're just like, oh yeah, hi. <laughs> So it's a little bit different in terms of that, but um, yeah, knowing knowing what I've done and what I've accomplished, I'm I'm very proud of that and proud to represent Winnipeg for sure. So the fight is on the 15th in Denmark. This opponent, Sarah Mafood. What can you tell us about Sarah? Um, you know what? Uh, I don't have a ton of information. I, I never do. My coaches look up at her. Um, I know she's taller and she's got a long jab. She likes her one-twos and all that kind of junk. Um, she doesn't like to fight backing up, which is all I do, which is that fantastic. Um, and she, like, the other thing I looked up, she did Dancing with the Stars on Denmark, so I'm kind of ticked about that. I'm like, I, w- I wanted to Canada Dancing with the Stars. Um, but I've been working with with my uh, senior coach, uh, Dan Pionovich, uh, for weeks now, and and he's the one coming with me, and then also with my head coach, uh, Kent Brown, and we've kind of uh, worked on everything we need to do, so whatever she throws at me, I'm, I'm prepared. I've got a good sparring stable, lots of the guys there coming out, getting their bruises. Um, it's been good. In hockey, we talk a lot about going out and you want to dictate the style of play, especially on home ice. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to remind the other team that they are in your barn, so to speak. When you're on the road in boxing, you know that the judges are almost for sure going to be local, and that's why it's difficult to win on the road in boxing, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, there's always a saying that's like you got to put them in a coma to get a draw and that kind of oh thing. Oh, my and, gosh. And you know what? You you understand that, and, and even in the Estonia, if you look at the end fight where the judge is holding her hands about to call it, I look proud and shoulders stand back, and she looks like she's going to cry. And they gave it to her. Like I lost. I think I made it one, two rounds on the whole card, and I just was like, what? I had a lot of Russian vodka that day. But... Um, um, it, it's you know what you just sometimes you can't win, but this fight I'm doing everything I possibly can, and, and because it's been so few and far between, I've had about six offers in the year, and they've all fallen through. So this is the first one that legitimate like is is gonna go through. Um, so it could very well be my last fight. You never know, right? Olivia the Predator Garula, Denmark, June fifteenth versus Sarah Mafood.
Thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about it. Where can we follow your adventure online? Um, currently, I'm still waiting for information from a link um, or something, but we will post it on my oliviathepredator.com. Hey, it's Manitoba Pizza Week. We love when uh, we have these weeks, and uh, we have a guest in studio who is a colleague of ours here at 680 CJOB, Kevin Bergen, host of The Main Ingredient on Saturdays and Sundays at 5 p.m., correct? Correct, sir. You know, and I told you, I shaved, I smell relatively good, and it's just boys in the room right now. I thought I was going to meet Loren, and she thought she was going to be here, and... You know, I could have come in my pajamas now that you two are just here. Relatively was the operative word in that <laughs> sentence, just for the record. We also have with us Andrew Shevchik, who is Director of Marketing for Boston Pizza, live on 680 CJOB. Andrew, you brought us three pizzas. See, I, we thought you only had one, the Hawaii Pie-O, but you brought three pizzas, and I've tried them all, and I will admit, Craig. Whoa, 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 whoa. You you tried the Hawaii pie o? I tried it. Yes, it's re- you got it's research. I tried it. Got to do it. Got to do it. I Look will, at it. It's I awesome. will admit, uh, it, it's it, I'm not. I see. Here's the thing. I'm not a pineapple guy, but uh, it's pretty good. And if you don't like the pineapple, you can take it off because there's other ingredients here. So, Andrew, why don't you tell us about the uh, first? I love the name Hawaii Pie O. Yeah, when Kevin and uh, CJB calls, we've got to come. We can't come with one pizza. We got to bring all three. So, uh, the one you just tried, the Hawaii Pie O. Here's the flavors: the sweet Thai honey garlic, Gouda, provolone cheeses, and Parmesan pizza mozzarella, red onions, a little bit of a salty with the smoky prosciutto. Bacon and then grilled pineapple on top, and then uh, toasted sesame seeds on top. So our take on the Hawaiian pizza, and um, very popular. So you grill the pineapple ahead of time, and then dice it up, cut it up, or yep. is that how that works? Yes, yeah, grill right before, and then on top, and then it goes through the oven to give it that sweet, salty flavor, and um, people love it. We've had multiple debates about whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza. It is your prerogative as a, a, a pizza a, a pizza entrepreneur to put the pineapple on the pizza. If it works for your bottom line, uh, all the better for you. Pineapple is hot, and our guests, lots of them, love it. <laughs> He's such a pizza politician. I like a that. pizza politician. <laughs> like that. Now, now, at 1630 Keniston Boulevard, I mean, this is already winning for me. The Mad Mac. Yeah, it's that familiar burger taste you love on a pizza. So you've got ground beef, Mm -hmm. onions, cheddar, pizza mozzarella. We add a little smoky bacon, top it with iceberg lettuce, chopped pickles, mac sauce, and then dust it with sesame seeds. Sounds like it would be a favorite for McNabb. It's got pickles on it. It's my favorite. Well, of the three, I think it's the one that I seem to be enjoying the most. You really nailed it, by the way, in terms of the comparison to the the burger. So, So these pizzas are only they're location specific. Well, we're marqueeing those three stores, but just because, you know, Kevin does such a great job with Pizza Week, we know our guests are going to be asking for them at all the restaurants. So we've got them available at every BP in Winnipeg and all during Pizza Week, which just started yesterday and runs through Saturday. How many restaurants, Kevin? 50. 50? 50. And yes. this is your second year? Year number two. How many were there last year? There was about uh, just over 40. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's growing. How did it go last year? Last year was awesome. Sold a ton of pizzas. Again, a lot of good feedback. Um, decided to, like, Pizza Week, 
restaurants in Winnipeg do a lot of things well, right? And pizza is one of the most popular foods in the world. So why not combine them both and show what Winnipeg restaurants can do? And BP is a good example of that. I, th- I think, and I've always said that these weeks give an opportunity, an excuse, A, but an opportunity uh, for different restaurants to, to show off what they have. And, you know, competition is one thing amongst re- restaurateurs, but, Andrew, there's also a com- camaraderie in in the in that community, right? Because... Uh, there's a common goal here, a common cause as well. Absolutely. And you know what? People love to go out. They love to try things. This, we're, we're offering up some new flavors. Everyone wants to put what they're dining on on Instagram. So obviously you have to eat with your eyes before you eat with your mouth. So we wanted to have some visually really pleasing pizza. At the end of the day, great flavors that people enjoy. They'll post, they'll share and tell their friends about and uh, go out and have a great week of pizza. Kevin, one of the things I often hear from people when we we talk about these various food weeks, whether it's Burger Week or Fried Chicken Week or now Manitoba Pizza Week, they say, oh, you know, pizza should only have cheese and meat and a couple of veggies. You know, why why do I want to try a pizza with macaroni on it or something like that? They don't like the creativity. So what do you say to that? Well, I say, you know what? There are no rules when it comes to culinary anymore. With, with, with things like the explosion of the internet and the food network especially, people realize that now. And you don't have to sit there. If something tastes good, it tastes good, right? So along with many other forms of, uh, of food, pizza's fallen in line with you can put anything on it, anything you enjoy, and just make it and enjoy it, period. Right. And the whole local side as well. Of course, BP being a chain, but you've got other chains involved uh, that that uh, do business here in Winnipeg. But it's neat to see the the little guy get a chance in, in something like this. 100%. There's a lot of little uh, mom and pop shops that don't get a chance to market themselves properly or have a, you know, get, get a, a light uh, sh- shined on their business at a particular time. Because um, a lot of them are busy working. You know, they just sit there and they're, they work, put their nose to the grindstone and work. So this is a good opportunity for everybody's collective power to bring a lot of good marketing power and light on the smaller shops too, right? Yeah, well, and especially uh, like I've w- these various weeks have introduced me to restaurants that I didn't know existed. Totally. Uh, and now with Pizza Week as well, it, it, it's a good reminder. Maybe it, it'll bring you back to Boston Pizza, for example, if you haven't been there for a while. And especially now, Andrew, you can go with the basketball playoffs. That's probably packing the lounges somewhat. Absolutely. A lot of Mad Mac pizzas and a lot of people uh, looking at uh, the wraps there. Um, tough, tough loss last night, but uh, I think we'll uh, rebound in, no pun intended, we'll rebound <laughs> in, uh, in game three in uh, California. Um, you know, what you were saying before about, you know, people, traditionalists and saying, what are you putting new on a pizza? You know, Boston Pizza, when they started 55 years ago, the whole concept of pizza in restaurants in Canada was brand new to people. People didn't have a favorite because it was it was something new. Started in, in Edmonton 55 years ago. So, you know, these items that are new, like our bourbon barbecue chicken pizza, it's new now, but it might become someone's traditional favorite, you know, a year from now. So um, try the new pizzas, lots of great flavors, and, uh, you know, it might become your new favorite. Well, just like people will comment, where are all these people coming from that are building new houses in Winnipeg and filling them, and and the traffic is getting busier all the time. Winnipeg's a growing city, more and more restaurants, but you guys are as busy as ever, it seems. We are as busy as ever. Last week was just a fantastic week. You know, we like to be involved with so many things in the community. 
community. And at the end of the day, whether you're bringing your family, you're bringing in your sports team, or you're just coming in with your significant other or coming in to watch the game, so many reasons to come by and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, the right food for you. Kevin, there's a philanthropic uh, portion and part of what you've got going on with Pizza Week Manitoba here. Yeah, Kids Initiative is uh, gets part of the proceeds to uh, to Manitoba Pizza Week, which is a local Winnipeg charity nonprofit that um, does huge things um, globally in Africa, in Kenya. Right? They have a lot of different programs that uh, a lot of them, the money that they raise goes to. So we support them uh, pretty much every event that I'm involved in. Um, I donate to them. Fantastic. Yeah. ManitobaPizzaWeek.com is the website. And again, the three pizzas from Boston Pizza, the Hawaii Pie-O, the Bourbon Barbecue Chicken, and the Mad Mac. My personal vote is the Mad Mac, uh, but they're all excellent. Andrew Shefchik from Boston Pizza joining us to bring us these pizzas alongside Kevin Berg and host of The Main Ingredient, which you can hear Saturdays and Sundays at 5 o'clock on CJOB or get the podcast and make sure you follow on social media, The Main Ingredient. Gentlemen, thank you very much for this. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. I'm going to resume eating now. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.